Welcome to the Association 4.0 podcast. I'm Sherry Budziak, CEO and founder of DataWorksource. Association 4.0 is how we describe the skills needed to navigate Industry 4.0 or the digital marketplace. Hi there, I'm Meredith Menken. I'm an independent association technology consultant. I work with OrgSource, among other organizations, and I'm excited to be here today to talk with Cecilia Sepp. She's the principal and founder of Rogue Tulips Nonprofit Consulting and a part-time contractor at OrgSource. Today, we're going to talk about finding and investigating data that helps us truly understand members, their needs, and our organization's potential for growth. Cecilia has a lot of experience in this area and some great takeaways for anyone who's planning a research effort. I'm really happy to be here with you, Cecilia. Oh, thanks, Meredith. I'm excited because I'm usually the interviewer and not the guest. So this is a fun thing for me. And I understand you do a lot of research. Is that right? That is true. I am a researcher at heart and uh, probably have been one since I was a child, although I didn't label myself that way at the time. But I've always liked um, understanding things and researching things and collecting data and then figuring out what it means. So yeah, I do a lot of research and I consider myself a specialist in qualitative research in addition to the other types of research I do. Well, let's dig into that a little. What is qualitative research? I mean, anybody today can just do a few clicks and send out an online survey and the software serves up a scoring report with numbers and they look pretty scientific. But what is qualitative and what does it add to the research puzzle? I'm so glad we're talking about this because I don't think a lot of people really understand fully what qualitative research is. I think we all have a really strong understanding of quantitative because that's when you measure a number or a fact, like 25 people did not like our annual conference, but 75 people did like the annual conference. So that's pretty straightforward. But qualitative research is what I like to call the story behind the story. Because when you talk with people and you get their opinions and their ideas or their concerns about the organization and its future, what that does is it gives you insight into what those numbers mean. So qualitative is subjective versus objective, which is what quantitative data is. And when you partner those two, I feel you get a, re a richer research study. Okay. Well, one of the issues with research is often how much time and effort you have to put into it. Uh, shaping your study, then collecting the data, then interpreting the data. What are some of your tips to make sure that this effort is really going to be worth it and yield data that's meaningful for my organization? How should I get started? Oh, that, I am so glad you asked that because so many organizations really have the best of intentions. I wanna learn, I wanna get this data. I'm gonna send out a survey, but surveys are tools. Surveys are not the end result. And I think too many times we get caught up in that. Well, I'm doing a survey, but why are you doing the survey? So we all like to quote Simon Sinek because he wrote the book first, you start with why. And a lot of people say that, oh, well, Simon Sinek says, why? Well, why are you collecting data? Are you trying to answer a question or are you trying to solve a problem? Or are you trying to plan for the future? Where should we go from here? 
So the very first thing you need to do is define what it is you want to know more about or understand. And, and then what you need to do is choose your tools. And when I say choose your tools, there's of course surveys, there's worksheets, there's uh, qualitative interview protocols, which is what brings us back to talking to people. And worksheets are another qualitative tool that you can use. And a worksheet uh, is less time intensive in the collection of the data because you can send it out to a large group of people and collect a lot of information very quickly as opposed to telephone interviews, which are great because you can do follow-up questions, but those are a bigger investment of time. And if you're outsourcing that, it's also a bigger investment of money. And even if you insource it with your own staff, you're still paying them to do that instead of what their regular job is. So what exactly is a worksheet? How is it different from a phone interview? Well, a worksheet is static. So the only data you get on a worksheet is the responses to those questions right in front of them. And that's what makes it static. A telephone interview protocol is dynamic because I would draft you know, seven to nine questions. But if somebody says something inter interesting during the interview, I can do follow-up questions. I can say, ooh, that's a really interesting thread. Let's explore that a little bit. You can't necessarily do that on a worksheet because they fill it out either online or they fill it out in Word and email it back to you. Um, and, and there's really no room for that follow-up. So that's really the big difference. But a worksheet is very similar to an interview protocol, which is basically a protocol is what you call your list of questions that you're going to ask people. And they should flow from uh, the broadest to the narrowest questions, or they should cover whatever the big buckets are you're trying to learn more about. Okay, so it almost sounds like with the worksheet, people are interviewing themselves. Yes, or responding to a survey. Because the great thing about online survey tools, like you mentioned, is they're very easy to set up and they don't tend to be too expensive usually. Uh, there's some free models out there that work really well. And you can set up an online survey that's open-ended. So an open-ended question for people listening who maybe don't do a lot of research is a question that people can just say whatever they want. So that's a, you would set up a text box and say, just fill in this text box. Uh, but the quantitative is close-ended because there's only so many options. So it's sort of like the CAE exam. You get a question in four options and you have to pick one of those four. They don't let you say other and fill in the blank. <laughs> so that's, that's really the difference. And, and that's where a, a worksheet can actually be really helpful. I often recommend to my clients that I work with who do uh, worksheets that or I'm sorry, do research projects that a worksheet's a great addendum tool to that project because you can get more information from a specific segment that maybe you're not going to do telephone interviews with. And so that's a really nice balance to that. Okay. The one thing though, when you say open-ended questions, that makes me a little nervous because there's just <laughs> so much stuff people can put in there. Um, when I'm doing this kind of research and I know I have to ask open-ended questions, how do I do that so I know I'm going to get the kind of data I need? Well, that is also a great question uh, because what you have to do with your questions is you have to make sure they're very specific. Uh, if you are looking, and so I'm going to back that up just a little bit because, you know, they're open-ended because maybe people are going to say something even in a worksheet in an open-ended response that's really interesting. You're like, huh, you know, maybe we need to find more data on that. 
But if you ask a more specific question, if you're concerned you're going to get too much data back, uh, which I can tell you there is no such thing as too much data uh, because you just sort it out of what's actually going to be valuable to you at that time and what maybe you set aside to inform the background or something. But uh, you're, what you do want is the big open-ended response because like if you say, what are your top three concerns for your company over the next two years? Pretty often people think in threes. We think in threes. So it's the three things you can pick from, the three things I'm going to do today, uh, the three most important priorities of the organization. And generally when people write a response, that's what they do. They write a list of three things. Uh, I've been doing qualitative research for a really long time and I rarely get like, you know, a 5,000 word essay in response. So that's a, that's a fear that you, uh, you can allay. Uh, it is a concern. You want to make sure that people are actually answering the question. But I generally have found over the years people write, you know, pretty short responses. Um, unless they're upset about something, then you tend to get a longer response. <laughs> so. What about when you, the point in time that you choose? Um, you know, for instance, if you are doing this research right after your big annual meeting where people just had a certain experience, you might get different responses than you would um, when you've just sent them their, their bill for renewing their membership and they've seen, you know, what their investment is in dues that year. So how do you decide, you know, what and when you're conducting research to continue to make the data meaningful? Oh, wow. That's another really good question. And I'm glad you asked that because everybody should think about the timing. And there's a lot of things that go into that. And I'm going to give the classic consultant answer. It depends. But uh, it's good. That's on point for this question because it does depend on what your organization's goals are and what they're doing and why they're doing it and how that what that data is going to be used for. So a couple of examples. If you know you're getting ready to do strategic planning and your board is either going to meet in person to review the strategic plan, or even if it's a virtual strategic planning, you have to back out your research from when they're going to be making their decisions. And the reason you need to do that is you need to make sure that you have gathered the information with plenty of time to analyze it. Because gathering data is just the first step, it's the analysis that makes the difference. And that's what informs your recommendations and decision-making. So if you're doing strategic planning, just back it out about three months from when they're going to be doing their strategic planning meeting and make sure they have at least a week to read the research report that you generate or that you have a consultant generate for you. If you're doing membership research, and when I say membership research, that could be a membership satisfaction survey or you're getting input on products and services that they like or don't like or seeing what they use. Uh, that depends on, again, is that going to inform your budget cycle? Is it going to inform a report at an annual conference? So then those kind of research reports that aren't related to an, a specific event are a little easier to plan. But what you do have to keep in mind is other people in other departments may be doing surveys or research collection. So every association and nonprofit should coordinate their research collection schedule. And that's really important because you don't want to generate survey fatigue, which is what you call it when people just quit answering because you're asking them too often. And you also don't want the survey to be too long either. 
Yeah, that's for sure. Um, that's a great point about survey fatigue because it seems like you don't wanna just have all your research happen at a single point in time or through a single tool, but then you also don't wanna be hitting your members with surveys every single month. Well, and you don't, you really don't. And what happens sometimes is, well, the communications department does a survey and then the membership department does a survey and then maybe the executive services department does a survey. And if you over-survey, you're not gonna get good data because people won't respond. You also don't wanna have the piggyback effect is what I call it of the membership department decides they're going to be doing a survey. So they share that at a staff meeting, we're going to be doing a survey. And then everybody and their brother in your organization wants to add questions to your membership survey. That is also a mistake. Uh, I worked on a project years ago uh, where a client ended up with a 75 question survey and they did not want to follow the advice of you cannot do a 75 question survey because you can't, it just doesn't work. There's one organization I know of that their members will answer a very long survey, but their very long survey is 50 questions. And, and they traditionally do a 50 question survey, the members expect it and they answer it. But they also only do the survey about once a year or maybe every two years. So that's a little different situation. If you are trying to collect regular data quarterly or even twice a year, you do still have to be very careful about it. So don't piggyback a lot of demographics on your survey if you're trying to get data. And what I mean by that is some people say, let's ask them to update their member record and answer all these survey questions and give us qualitative data all in the same. No, that's not a good idea. I am all for keeping your database updated and clean, but send out a separate information request for that. That's not really a survey. What you're saying to your members is we care about spelling your name right please let us know if we did. <laughs> and and, and that, that's a different thing. And a lot of AMSs now will let you give access to the member record to your members and they can just update the record whenever they want to. But uh, that's a very different thing. That is, that is a data management tool as opposed to a data collection tool. So they're two very different things. So don't mix them. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, one of the things we've sort of hinted at but haven't really talked about is making sure you're getting the right people to respond. Mm -hmm. You know, we all know organizations kind of do the omnibus surveys and they want to hear from all the members. But what if you're really doing targeted research, like you mentioned for strategic planning or maybe, you know, new product development or something like that? How do you know you're talking to the right people? Well, that is going to depend on how well you understand the people in your membership. Because the more you know about your members, the better you can segment them. And we all know segmentation is a great way to provide on-point communication and services. But if you wanna know, let's say uh, members who have been members two years or less, what services do they value the most at this point? Then that's very easy. You just pick people that have been members for two years or less and you and you send it out just to them. And your goal is to get a 10% response rate on any survey. And so if you can get a 10% or more, that's great. And so that's how you can be very specific about it. And another way to do it, is because maybe you're asking them different questions or you can segment it and say, we're, we want to learn more about what services are seen as valuable. 
we're going to send it to this group and ask the same questions. You would have to ask the same questions. We're going to send it to people two years and less, and then people who have been members 10 years and more. And then we're going to compare the responses and see what they say. And that's another way. So that's how you get the right people. You have to identify what it is you're trying to learn. And so once you do that, you can really define that because I can tell you uh, if somebody is doing a research project for you, like let's say you come to my company or your company and we're doing a research project for you and we're doing the whole survey universe and a survey universe is like everybody in the membership, you're going to segment those responses anyway. You're going to ask, you know, who are these people, you know, how long have you been a member and things like that just for segmentation as, as opposed to that, unless you are using the database to track who's responding. And then you can pull out, well, I know this guy responded and he's been a member for X number of years. So either way you can segment that data and find out. Now, when you say the right people, if you are doing strategic planning, the right people might be the board of directors, committee chairs, and chapter presidents. If you have chapters or affiliates, uh, you'd want the affiliate leadership, or if you have special interest groups, you would want to get people from those special interest groups. Who's ever the leader, whatever their title might be, it could be chair of a special interest group uh, or convener. But whoever your leadership is, you might want to do a leadership research project. And that's how you get, that would be those right people. But the right people are defined by what it is you're trying to do. Okay. And you mentioned a 10% response rate. What, what's magic about reaching the 10% threshold? Well, generally with data, you need at least 7% to be able to make any uh, an analysis. And when I say make any analysis, that's probably not like, that's totally not proper research talk, but in order to... <laughs> Uh, have data that actually is um, is viable and is strong. You need at least seven percent, and that's because you anything less than seven percent, it's not strong enough data to make any conclusions or recommendations. And that's why I say ten percent. Ten percent is pretty good. Um, so that's why you want to get about ten percent. So stronger response rate. You can work with seven, but ten percent is better. And anything over 10 is fantastic. So if you get like 13, 15, the, the highest I've seen, I think uh, in my own experience was about a 17, per, no, it was like, yeah, 17 or 18% response nice. rate out of all the members, which that's really good if you, yeah. so, but yeah. that's why, because you need at least 7% for it to be meaningful. Um, and that's why I say you want to go for 10. You always try to go for 10. So a lot of times when I'm talking to clients or potential clients, I'll say you might want to give them a, a survey incentive. Like if you answer a survey, we'll give you a $10 gift card or give you money off the annual conference or something like that to motivate people to do it. Um, because you really do want to get that 10% is really the best. Okay, well, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here because we're, you know, already talking about how valid the results are. But first, we got to get to those results. Right. And I know you said there's never such a thing as too much data, but, you know, I've certainly put in my hours kind of combing through um, what people wrote on meeting evaluations and, and trying to make sense of it. And it's really hard when people are just putting things into their own words and you've got to try to figure out, you know, what, what buckets to put them in or what the trends are. You know, what, what's the secret sauce? How do you turn this 
kind of data into actionable information? Well, another really good question, because I know that's qualitative data. That is the challenge. And I think that's why I like it a lot, because it's it's very interesting to me to figure out what people actually are saying, because we all know people will say things like, you know, one time when I was a membership director, or a member called me, they were yelling about something and I kind of knew this person and they were yelling and they were angry about something. And I said, you know, I don't think this is what you're really mad about. What are you really mad about? And then they stopped and they said, oh, you're right. That's not what I'm really mad about. And, and it turned out they hadn't been included in a meeting or something. And that's what they were upset about. But they didn't feel they could say that. So that's really kind of that is an experience thing. And so a lot of qualitative, as you know, you have a lot of experience going through meeting evaluations. So over the years, you probably developed your own technique for figuring out what are they saying. So maybe you circled certain words in the sentence, or you looked for context clues. And sometimes data is not meaningful. Like if you say, you know, what is your feedback on the meeting or what could we do differently? Some questions like that, they're too open-ended. So you don't want a question that's too open-ended. You wanna to try to be a little more specific and focused. So if you say, is there anything that we could do differently to make your meeting experience better? People might say, no, none, I have nothing to say. Well, that's not helpful data at all. So you just throw all that out because it's like, no, okay, well, we must be doing fantastic. So we don't, because there's nothing we can do to improve. But then what you do is people who actually do answer a question like that, like if they say, well, I really didn't feel I had enough time between sessions. Okay, that's one response. And then another person says, I needed to go to the bathroom and I couldn't. Okay, what do those two comments have in common? not enough time between sessions. And so that's what you try to do with those kind of things. When people are saying it in their own words, what they're saying is there's not enough time between sessions to have a restroom break or to maybe check email or phone calls uh, to go that I work I have to do at the office perhaps. And so that's what you do is you look at what they're saying and you figure out, well, how does it relate to what the other people are saying? And then you can see a pattern and that leads us to the pattern of, oh, there's not enough time between sessions because this person said there's just not enough time between sessions, but this person said they didn't have time to go to the bathroom. And another person said, I didn't have time to check messages to see if I needed to call the office. So that's how you start to string it together. You look at like, okay, well, this guy said there's not enough time between sessions that other people say similar things. And then you can kind of put them all under that umbrella or on that list. And another thing I used to do is just kind of circle the words because some people will write a really long sentence and you're trying to figure out, well, what, what are they talking about? They're saying all these things and then you just circle the important words and then that gives you insight into what people are saying. And then you don't go back to your report and quote people. This was a mistake I made in the early years of my research career. I would just spit back out what people had written down or what they said to me on the phone in a phone interview. And I got the report back and told that's not what you were asked to do. You were asked to analyze it and tell me what it means. That's the difference. So you can just put up a list, put together a list of this is everything everybody said, or you can put that list together, read it and figure out what it actually means. So, so using our example about time between sessions, there's not enough time between sessions. And here's all these examples. So the recommendation becomes, we should allow 15 minutes between sessions instead of five. 
because you also see comments like, I didn't have time to get to my session room in it and I was late because it was on the other side of the convention center. So you look at what people are actually talking about and, and what, it, what it means for, for you know, other people. And, and that's how you start to analyze it because you might get 50 pages of comments, but it's really summed up in one or two sentences. You mentioned a couple useful techniques like circling words and so forth, but is this the kind of thing, you know, that I can just hand off to someone on my staff to do? Um, is it, you know, am I going to get the results I'm looking for by just kind of taking a stab at it? <laughs> well, you would, Meredith, because you've done it before. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and I would because I've done it before. But handing off a qualitative study to somebody who hasn't done it before, if you're going to do that, you need to use it as a training tool and know that they're probably going to need to work at it. Um, unless that's somebody with a graduate degree in research or something like that. But if, if you have a, a early career professional on your staff and you want to pull them into this qualitative study, you need to give them the time to redo it a couple of times. It, because you need to look at it and say, well, I, I don't think that's what this really means or all you're doing is putting out a list of what everybody said. You're not telling me what it means. What do you think it means? And so you have to train people in critical thinking and analytical skills. And so I, I would say, you know, we all have to learn how to do it. So if you have the time and, and the resources to let somebody do something like that so they learn how to do it, I say go for it, um, especially if they have a, a degree in the humanities or liberal arts, because those are people who are taught to think, because when, because I have a political science degree, and that's liberal arts, and we had to think and do research and say what things meant. And so if you have somebody on your staff like that, who you think could do it, I say give it to them, but know that they're probably going to have to work on it a few times before it's right. That's awesome. I have a political science degree too, and I never really thought about how that was actually helping me in my career. <laughs> you know, I found, uh, well, first of all, must be we're, that's why we're kindred spirits and we hit it off right away <laughs> when we first met. Uh, but I really look at that and I think, yeah, that's really a lot of what I did. And I found it, a lot of what I did back then and for my research of, you know, skills, but also, um, I've, I used to be a component relations professional for a good part of my career. And, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it's also called chapter relations. And I found my political science training really helped me a lot with uh, the soft skills required for chapter relations. Yeah, that's for sure. A lot of interpersonal um, acuity comes yeah. into play, so. Well, we have tried to, um, you know, kind of give the 30,000 foot view on what's a really complex process. Mm -hmm. uh, but what you've described here, I think it yields up a lot more than statistics. Is that right? Yes, it does. What it does is it provides insight and understanding into what the audience that you surveyed or collected data from really thinks about things because you can look at numbers and they're numbers. Like, like the classic example I like to use is if I have two members and then I get two more members, I now have four members. I've just increased my membership 50%. So 50% sounds pretty good until you look behind the percentage and you see there's four people now instead of two. So technically, yes, it's a 50% increase, but it's not like 5,000. 
It's not like I went from two to 5,000. So when you're doing qualitative research, that gives you a fuller picture and, and a richer understanding. It's the story behind the numbers. The numbers are telling you a story, but the qualitative fills in a lot of the details. So like, it's like, if you like to read, I love to read. And, you know, I like to read novels and the novels that really get my attention are the ones with the most detail in the descriptions. Like uh, example I love to use is Anne Rice's book, The Witching Hour. And, and yes, it's a supernatural fiction novel, but her writing, I think that was the most elevated her writing ever was because it was so rich and full of detail that you could almost smell the flowers in the garden district in New Orleans, because that's how well she described it. And so when you do a qualitative study, especially if it's an addition to a quantitative study, that gives you that really rich background and detail and those numbers start to make even more sense as to what's going on. So let's say you you do your, your example of the annual conference evaluation and you get really negative reviews and, and, and you do a quantitative evaluation and, and you know 75% of the people didn't like the conference and you're like, what's going on here? Well, that's where you can do a quantitative study where you maybe get the people who were negative and you dive in and you say, could you tell me a little bit more about why you thought this meeting was so bad? And then they, they start to give you the details and then that's what makes those numbers make more sense and help you act on them more quickly and easily in the future. I love that. I love thinking about ways to get the kind of detail that helps us understand all the different experiences and perspectives that our different members are bringing to what we're offering. So that's great. Yeah. And, and that's really the, the beauty of qualitative research. And, and some people think you can't just do a qualitative study, but I beg to differ. I think you could do uh, very in-depth qualitative studies and get really strong research that you can act on because you get more direction, I think, from qualitative than quantitative. And again, I think that's why it's a regular practice with research to have a component of both. Uh, whether you're doing an interview section of 15 to 20 people to inform the development of your survey questions, or whether you're doing them in conjunction with each other, or you're doing a hybrid data collection tool, which would be an online survey tool that's some quantitative and then some open-ended questions. Like, could you elaborate on why you picked these three things as your favorite product, you know, products or the ones you use the most. And, and then people say, oh, well, I like this because I learn more from this magazine than I do from the e-newsletters or whatever it is they share with you. And then it helps you focus your resources. And you really have to, in the end, understand the member experience. Like you were just saying, you know, hearing from the members, their opinions, their viewpoint, because we look at it when we're on staff, we look at it from a staff perspective. You know, we see the association completely differently. You, know, you were talking about the 30,000 foot view. We see the association way up close <laughs> when we're on staff. <laughs> and when we're members, we see it more from the 30,000 foot. But you also have some members who get so into whatever their networking group is. So maybe they're in an online community and that's all they see of the association. Well, that tells you something too, because they're only focusing on that instead of everything else they could be focusing on. So you really do need to get data uh, from different quadrants and in different ways in order to really make some good decisions. 
That's great. I love hearing that it's going to give us, you know, the kind of data we need to apportion our resources, right? Like you said, I mean, that's super important always, but particularly this year, I think. I, I agree because this is, well, <laughs> 2021 is almost like 2020 uh, revisited because we're still in a lot of areas on some pretty serious lockdowns. And I know people are hesitant to meet in person. Uh, so yeah, we really do need to talk to them more. And I know Zoom, people are getting Zoom burnout or Zoom fatigue and things like that. But uh, I've had more people ask me, can we just do a phone call? instead of Zoom, because it's less energy draining <laughs> to talk on the phone. And when you think about it, we all use to talk on the phone more than we did Zoom. I mean, I've had a Zoom account for like six years. Like I had it way before the pandemic and I kept, you know, a paid one and I kept trying to get people like, well, be on video with me. No, 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 let's just talk on the phone, you know? And then the pandemic hit and everybody's like, let's be on Zoom so I can see people, you know? And it's like, oh my gosh, okay. You know, um, but those phone calls, can be just as interesting. And I think you might learn more because when people are on the phone and they're not being looked at, I think they're more relaxed and they're probably more willing to tell you some stuff than if they're on Zoom, uh, especially if they're being recorded, you know, then it's just like, oh, I got to be really careful about what I say. So that, oh, and that's another good thing I didn't mention before. Uh, you, you probably want to make your uh, data collection anonymous. Uh, simply because then people feel more comfortable, um, especially if you're doing qualitative, like they will know who's been invited to give interviews, they being, you know, the staff at the organization, but they don't need to know who said what. So that, that's another thing. You really need to protect the confidentiality of the interviews. And you'll have people that will say, oh, well, I'm not telling you anything I haven't told them already. Well, that's fine. But you don't, you still don't need to tell the association who said what, <laughs> it's like, just let people talk. And then the, the term that we use is aggregate. Mm -hmm. You know, you probably use that term too, Meredith. It's just, you aggregate the information. You don't just spit it all back out. Absolutely. That's where you see the trends. That's where you see um, change over time is when you look at stuff as an aggregate instead of a point by point. Exactly. And, you know, and another thing we haven't touched on yet, and I'd love to hear your perspective on it too, is secondary research. You can do a lot of secondary research as well to get some clarity and direction for your organization, especially if your organization has a lot of data stored somewhere. Uh, we collect data constantly and we rarely analyze it. So you could go back and do a secondary study and and find some things and that's also really useful and you could write up a report about that as well uh, so what exactly is secondary is it you know as you kind of alluded to is it taking data you already collected but maybe didn't analyze fully or looking at outside data sets or what well secondary research yeah that's a good question i guess i should have explained that yeah. a little more before you start talking about it secondary research is exactly what you said meredith it's data that already exists and so that's usually used like for, for us in our role as consultants, we would request secondary research so that we more fully understand the client and what they're looking for and what they've already done. And that, that helps us develop uh, our tools for primary research. And so primary research is when you collect new information, but the secondary research, the existing data can inform the tool you pick or the questions you ask. 
but it can also just tell you a lot about trends. Like you were talking about identifying trends and themes and secondary research is great for that. And uh, we've probably all heard of Daniel Pink, uh, sure. the author, and, he, and he's, and I was reading an article about his process and what he does. He basically writes books that are secondary research because he has a team of researchers who work with him and they go back, they pick a topic like the book, when, which I loved, it's about when you start a project or when you do something. And he has a lot of great examples from history. And uh, so I recommend that book. Uh, but what he um, points out is he has a whole group of researchers that th whatever the topic is like timing, which is the topic of when they just they just went back and they found all the studies they could find, all the research available uh, on that topic. And then they went through it all and they synthesized it. And so what is this telling us about when people should do things? And then he wrote the book. That's awesome. I can think of a lot of data sources lying around unexploited, so to speak. Exactly. And people do research in silos. So think of all the different universities there are in the world and, and somebody at all of those universities has probably done a research study or a thesis on that topic. And another great example, and, and I'll be honest, sometimes people kind of look at me funny when I say this, but one of the best qualitative studies I've ever read was Life After Life, which is a study of near-death experiences and the potential for an afterlife, is there one? And the reason I say it's one of the best qualitative studies, there's no quantitative in there, it's all descriptive, so it's all open-ended. So the study was conducted over a 10-year period. The, the interview protocol was informed by secondary research that already existed, other studies that had been done. And so the author of Life After Life created a protocol, put it online, so people everywhere could access it. He also had it translated into different languages so that it was very clear to the people answering the qualitative study what they were being asked and what they were being asked to describe and to share their experiences. And so it was very clear. And then he collected all this information from all over the world and wrote his book. And what was interesting about it, it was a 10 year study all over the world and people had very consistent experiences when they had a near-death experience. Very similar descriptions of what happened, what they felt, what they saw. And that's why I feel that is one of the best qualitative studies I've ever seen because of the process in which he collected the data. So he started with secondary, he created a protocol and he made sure that protocol was understandable to everybody who answered it. That's amazing. That is kind of the ultimate qualitative research, isn't it? It is. And, it, and it's a really interesting book if you like that topic. Because <laughs> so, <laughs> obviously everybody who answered came back. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I guess that's a segment right there. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There's the, none of the dead people came back and answered. So <laughs> Wow, I guess we're going to leave it there for today. It has been a pleasure talking to you about the Cecilia. I have, you know, come up with kind of a couple different major points that I want to make sure I incorporate into my next research project. Well, thanks, Meredith. And I really enjoyed our conversation too. And I'm really pleased to, in addition to my own consulting company, uh, to being a part of .org Source's subcontractor team. So, As am I. It's, it's a great experience and a great organization. Yeah, we have a lot of fun there.
Thanks so much again. Thank you, Meredith. I hope you enjoyed this episode and discover tips and information that will add value to your leadership style and your association. .org Source specializes in positioning teams for success with solutions for technology, strategy, and marketing. Please contact us at info at orgsource.com to find out how to get your organization on track to Association 4.0. You can also engage in other educational content by becoming a member of .org community or reading our books on Association 4.0, which you can find on Amazon. We look forward to hearing from you soon.